Hey, church, uh, can we just give the Lord a hand? I think he's worthy of... We're uh, grateful that you're here with us. We want to welcome those that are joining us in Edgewood as well as those that are joining us online. Uh, We are grateful that you're here as we continue uh, our series on the book of Ephesians. This is actually week 13. And uh, today we're going to be diving into a passage that many of you have heard before. Uh, Some of you even had uh, parts of this text read at your wedding, or uh, at least is somewhat familiar to you. And it's uh, the text in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 and 33. And uh, as I stand uh, here today uh, to be the one to teach it, I can't help but be reminded uh, of the the bride of my youth. Uh, I've been uh, married 17 and a half years now to my wife, Kelly. We have three beautiful children together, and I still believe that it was a miracle that the Lord would allow me to have such a wonderful woman in my life uh, because she married a young, foolish child. Uh, ultimately, it was self, self-seeking, self uh, who delighted in my own um, appetites and ultimately looked out for my own uh, to cover my own uh, back, in a sense. Um, to be honest with you, I look in the mirror and oftentimes see that same man. Uh, and isn't it a challenge for us as we grow in conformity to Christ? And so today uh, I come and I just say that as we discover the text, I'm going to teach it humbly. I'm going to teach it in a way of just me ultimately saying, I, I know I don't have it together as a husband. Uh, I know I don't have it together um, as a follower of Jesus. And so I just humbly submit that to you now. Uh, that you would believe the best in me as I seek to believe uh, about becoming the best uh, in Christ. And so if you don't mind, I'm going to pray for us. And then we're going to dive into a text. We're going to read it and we're going to answer two questions. The question number one is, is how has Jesus loved the church? And second, as a result of Jesus' love for us, how should the church love him? And so those are the two questions. How has Jesus loved the church and how should the church love him? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we love you and thank you for today. Thank you for this text. I pray that you would uh, use it to encourage us to bring about change in our lives, to bring about devotion and honor and respect from us to you. God, you are so holy. You are blameless. You are perfect. You are pure. You are worthy of such praise and adoration. Lord, as we shout and sing and clap, Lord, you are worthy of a standing ovation in our lives. God, we cannot proclaim you enough. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to do that ever more in our lives, not just as we gather as a group, but just individually as we spend time with you, as we devote ourselves to you. Lord, help us just to be mindful of what it is that you have done in our lives. Help us to be mindful of what it is that we should do in our lives as a result of giving you praise for what you've done in ours. And so, Lord, teach us. May your spirit lead us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, maybe you're here today and you go, okay, so you're going to be t- talking about Ephesians 5. If you're, not new, if you're not new to church, you kind of know what that is. If you're new to church, you're like, okay, so what's Ephesians 5 text? Why do they read it at, at weddings or any of those type of things? And it's because it's talking about the love between a husband and a wife. But here's what I want you to realize. Because we're going to answer the two questions we are, how has Jesus loved us and how is the church to love him? This text is for all of us this morning. And it doesn't matter if you're single, uh, if you're uh, going to be married soon, or if you've been married for five years, five months, or 50 years. Like It applies to everyone in this room. There is no way around it. And so let's just, write, let's just read the text, and then we're going we're gonna to kind of move... Um, 
to a place where we just begin to dive into those two questions. And so here it is, Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. A lot of people go, oh man, what does that mean? Well, here's the deal. We're not answering that question today. We're answering two questions. One question is, how does the the Lord love the church and how does the church love him? Got me? Uh, We'll answer that question as we go. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, and he gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, and she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church." Why? Because we are the members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one. And this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So as we read through this, this is clearly a text that's talking about a relationship between a husband and his wife and a wife to her husband. But also, Paul says, but there's also another correlation that is really profound, and it's talking about the faithful and the one that's referred to in the Scriptures as the head of the church. He is the great shepherd. He is also referred in our Bibles to the bridegroom and the church, the people of God, the ecclesia, not a building but a people in this text, are referred to as the bride. And so you have a bridegroom in Jesus and you have a bride in the church. The question is, is as a result of this text, what do, we, what do we look at and how do we begin to understand why the mystery is profound that Jesus, the faithful bridegroom, would love us? And the reason it's profound is because when you look at us, when you think about us, it's profound. And here's a handful of ways that Jesus has demonstrated a profound mystery in the way he's loved us, the way he's cared for us, the way he's shepherded us, and the way he continues to pursue us. And so one of those ways is just in his service. Now think about this, in his service, that ultimately he is God's perfect son. Uh, According to Genesis 1.26, it says, let us make man in our image. In John chapter 1, we know that uh, from the beginning, the word was with God and the word was God. So Jesus is God, has always been with him in the beginning, and mankind was established and created in the image of God. And so because Jesus has always been, I want you to think about what service means. Service means that he would leave his place in the heavenlies, that he would leave a place where there was no sin or recollection or such, that he would leave a place and ultimately have to come to a a planet in which he created as good, now, which is now fallen and has been established in the sense of a sinful, wretched place. Jesus in service leaves the proper domain, the dwelling of God, a place where there is no sin, no hurt, no shame, no pain. And he humbles himself and he serves us. And he comes to a place where not only is he coming to a place where there is sin and shame and filth, but he's also coming to not be the king. Matter of fact, he says this in uh, Matthew chapter 20, or verse 28. He says, For the Son of Man did not come to serve, but to what? 
or to uh, be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. At the end of the day, what Jesus came to do was to humbly and lowly submit himself. I mean, think about how lowly does the Son of God get to be born in Bethlehem in a manger. Not a respectable place, not a palace, but ultimately he set the precedence early in saying that even though I am God, I'm going to humble myself in service to come as a lowly person to identify with lowly people. And so he serves us really well. He doesn't just serve us as he gives himself as a ransom, as he enters into sin. He also begins to show us what submission really looks like. I mean, think about this. Submission is for him to be the creator of everything we see and know, and even the things we don't see or know, Colossians 1, for the very God who created every fiber in your being to have to come and redeem you in service is an important thing. But not only did he come to redeem you in service, but he submits to the Father in doing so. I mean, think about it. If there is anyone worthy of living in a place that's perfect and pure, it would be the one who is perfect and pure. But he is the very one who leaves perfection and purity, and he comes, in a sense, to submit to his Father in faithful service for an impure, unfaithful people. And so when you start thinking about what it looks like to submit, it's It's the fact that he, the most worthy of living forever in perfection and purity, is the one who comes to die uh, amongst unholiness and imperfection and impurity. That's a crazy thing. Think about such. The very God who serves us submits to the Father. How does he submit? Even the the picture of the Garden of Gethsemane, you, you get that in the Gospel of Matthew, in which you just clearly see... In Matthew 28, verse 39, he goes, Hey, Father, may there be any other way that this cup could pass from me, but nevertheless, Lord, not my will, but thy will be done. At the end of the day, Jesus comes to serve, and then he even submits willfully and even gladly for the Father. He goes, Lord, I know if there was another way we would do that, but there is only one way to the Father. There is only one way to reconcile sinners to a holy God, and that is if a holy God lays himself down. And so he submits to the Father. He drinks the cup of wrath. He meets the legal demands of God so that you and I sinners could be set free. What an incredible thing. He comes in service and in submission, completely obedient to the Father. He comes in sacrifice. At the end of the day, a wretched people like us have to be atoned for. And because we have to be atoned for, there has to be a very high price. And that high price is not met just uh, the legal demands in goodness, but ultimately in death. There has to be some sort of redemptive purpose in sacrifice, and that is that it costs something. Sacrifice always costs something. It was an Old, text, Old Testament picture always prevailing even into the New Testament. In Philippians 2, 5 through 8 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, he was God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped. Why? Because he served us. In submission, he emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, he was born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Now think about this. He sacrificed himself after humbly serving us and submitting to the Father. He goes to the cross and that's genuine love. Why? Listen, genuine love is always partnered with liberty. Genuine love is always partnered with liberty. Now you go, what do you mean here? Listen, God wasn't forced 
to die or send his son. He didn't have to. I mean, maybe you think that about God. Oh, because God establishes creation, he had to do something to redeem it. He didn't have to. He desired to. He wanted to fulfill his covenant commitment to people. And so he willingly came in service and submission to sacrifice himself. He had the liberty or the freedom to not do such, but he chose to die, which made his love more genuine. When somebody loves you because they have to, that's not really love. When they love you because they get to, because they have the freedom to, that's genuine love. God doesn't have to. He desires to. He loves to love the unlovable. He loves to serve and submit to the Father on behalf of those He created, even though we're broken. That's genuine love. Genuine love's always tied to liberty. Now think about this. How did he sacrifice? What did that even mean? Well, he sacrificed in a handful of ways. One is just in his fidelity. Like he was just completely faithful. Like he, he was, he never moved. He was loyal. He was constant. I mean, even in his death, he died for a very unattractive bride. Now think about that for just a second. In his death, think about what he was dying for. He was dying for people who were by and large all unattractive. You didn't have your life together when Jesus died for you. You didn't have all of your stuff in order. And I know that you believe the lie that in order for me to come to God, I got to get myself cleaned up. But can I just tell you, it's impossible for you and I to get ourselves cleaned up apart from God. Like it just doesn't happen. And here's the deal. God didn't pick us the way that we pick our brides. Like the way we pick our brides, we go, well, I think I'm attracted to her. She's beautiful. I love her personality. She's got a really awesome laugh. Oh, I love that little crooked smile. Like it's just fantastic. And when we look at there's little peculiar things that we look in our, in our bride or in our spouse and we go, I love that about them. Listen, there was nothing lovable about you when Jesus was showing himself in fidelity. You were unattractive. You were dead in your sins and trespasses, but Ephesians 2 says he was willing to make you alive in Christ. That's love. And not only in that love, like he, he gives himself up in submission and service and in sacrifice the righteous for the unrighteous. I mean, it's this incredible transfer that he loved you enough that in his fidelity that he would actually give you his righteousness and take upon himself and on his shoulders all of your unattractiveness. I don't know about you, but that's an incredible burden to bear. But that's what he does. And then ultimately, in that fidelity, he brings about forgiveness in our life. And, and when you think about forgiveness, what I want you to think about is kind of a covering by grace. Like, think about this. If God ransomed you and was showing himself to be loyal and, and a constant fidelity in, in your relationship to him, even when you were unattractive, the question is, is how long is he going to give you and how much grace is he going to show you before you finally get attractive? I mean, that's an incredible thought, isn't it? I mean, that's what we need to realize is that God came and he was faithful even though when you were unattractive. The question is, how much grace does he show? How many wrongs does he cover? How long does he overlook before you finally get your stuff together? And there's some of us in this room, I, I think uh, for many of us that we go, I still seem to not have my stuff together. And somehow or another, God still says he's your bridegroom. Even when things aren't right, he, he continues to cover you by his grace. Why? Because even though we didn't begin as a beautiful bride, he's giving us a chance to become one. And that's a marvelous thought. 
Matter of fact, what's crazy is, is when you think about Jesus and his faithfulness, his fidelity, and, and his forgiveness, what you really need to realize is that he just never moves. He never changes. He's so faithful. He is forbearing in our relationship to him. Forbearance. Think about patience and long-suffering all kind of coupled in one. It's like patient. It's loving. It's kind. It's forbearing. It's the idea of like just steadfast. I mean, he's immovable. He's unchangeable. When you think about forbearance, it's like, why in the world is he going to continue to show himself faithful even though we have always been unfaithful? And not only did he pick us when we were unfaithful, he kind of has the expectation that we're going to remain unfaithful in many ways. And although that we are, in a sense, trying to get our stuff together and we're trying to move towards him, somehow we find ourselves not doing the things we ought to do, Romans 7, and finding ourselves doing the things we know we ought not to do. And he goes, but yet I'm still faithful. How is he showing forbearance? He shows that in his kindness and his gentleness towards us. That while we continue to slip and fall, he continues to pick us up. He doesn't delight in his arrogance. He never throws his righteousness in our face. He doesn't lord his, his authority over us. He is not a, a God of compulsion. Now, although he is a God that uh, reckons himself with sin and ultimately does desire to bring you back in conviction, he never ever asserts his authority in your life in a way that pushes you further away. He always desires to show forbearance that leads to forgiveness and grace. He bears all things. He hopes all things. Ultimately, he keeps no record of wrongs. He is the picture of a 1 Corinthians chapter 13 love. He is the faithful bridegroom Though we were messed up, though we were kind of ugly and unattractive, he died for us, he purchased us, ransomed us, has given us forgiveness, continues to cover us with that forgiveness, and he is patient in all of our sufferings and all of our afflictions and all of our sinfulness. At the end of the day, he is just a faithful God. He is so faithful. Faithful to maintain his covenant standards. God says clearly that you are mine. He ransomed us. He purchased us. Which means that he'll never break his end of the deal. He is a covenant keeping God. Hebrews 13. uh, He quotes an Old Testament uh, writing in which he just says, I will never leave nor forsake you. The idea of that is that he is again a God of fidelity. He is a God of forgiveness and of forbearance. And he shows that in a faithfulness to not move. He goes, if you might move, you might run away, you might, in a sense, look like the prodigal. But at the end of the day, the father is always here. Why? Because he's in covenant relationship with those he loves. Which begs the question, do you realize how covenant committed he is to you? If he'll never leave nor forsake you, then the question is, is do you believe the lie that many of you might have heard or even believed growing up? Which is, Somehow God would leave me or somehow maybe I could leave, leave him or even lose my salvation to him. The question is, is if that can't happen, then what does that say about God? Because at the end of the day, what the word says is he is so faithful to us. He's faithful to pursue us. He's faithful to protect us. It means that we, we shouldn't be deceived by the enemy if we are leaning in and loving him. It means that we can't be lost for him. John chapter 10, Jesus says this way, uh, verse 27 and following. He goes, listen, I am the good shepherd. You are my sheep. The sheep hear my voice and they follow me. I have them in the palm of my hand and there is nothing that can snatch you out of my hand. The idea of that is that you're my bride. A faithful bridegroom doesn't dump his bride. He doesn't dump her because if he dumped her, then what would he have to do? He'd have to go find a better bride. But listen to yourself real quickly. There's not a better bride. 
Because all brides under the banner of Christ are all ugly. They're all sinful. They're all wretched. They're all dark. And at the end of the day, the only one that the closer you get to that you come and see and it gets better is Jesus. Every other one in this room, the more we see about each other, the more ugly it gets. That's why I said I don't like too many people being in community with me. The reason why is because they'll really know who I am. They'll really know my, my peculiar sides, my sensitivities, my sinful things, the, the egotistical things I'll do. They, they see me. The more you see Brandon Bachtel, the worse it gets. And there's some of you that you love me from a distance. You're like, oh, pastor, I love you, man, your message. And I'm like, hey, dude, just come live with me for a second. You'll know what this really is. But yet God is faithful. He never leaves. He never forsakes us. I'm wretched. I'm sinful. I'm dark. Without Christ, I'm with no hope in this world. But yet he loves me. He maintains that. He secures me. He protects me. He allows me to be his. He's conforming us towards holiness. That's the goal. He is faithful to bring about something in our, work, in our lives. Philippians 1 goes, hey, if I begin a work in you, I'll, I'll be faithful and carry it to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. At the end of the day, he goes, I'm going to make my bride beautiful. If you're my bride, there's going to be some growth. You might try to resist it. You might try to do everything you can to keep him away. But he goes, if you're my bride, you are going to grow. Which brings up the question, if you're not growing, then maybe you're not the bride. At the end of the day, he goes, I'm going to do that. He goes, I'm going to give good gifts. God gives good gifts because he's a faithful husband. Listen, he doesn't say, hey, you know what? You're limited. I'm only going to loan out a handful of things out of my account when you're, when you're worthy. When you do things the right way, then I'll, I'll give you a few good gifts. Now, he's a benevolent, faithful God. He gives good gifts even to those who aren't his bride. He allows rain to fall even on the evil farmer. How much more does he give to good gifts to those he loves? How much more does he delight to do things, to give gracefully all things to those who love him and ultimately are his bride? Like, that's an incredible thought. He is faithful in all of those things. He is a covenant-keeping God. Here's the picture. Lean in with me real quickly. God saw fit to show who he is to you in service and submission and in sacrifice when at the end of the day, you were not lovable. He died for you. He purchased you and he goes, and now I'm going to be patient with you as I clean you up, as I make you my faithful bride, the church, the people that are of God's own possession. He goes, I'm going to make you a priesthood. I'm going to give you liberty and freedom. And I'm going to, in a sense, bring about resolve in your life. Like, I don't know about you, but that's pretty incredible. I, I, it just makes me want to just praise the Lord. Can we just praise the Lord together for his faithfulness, for his covenant-keeping ideas? I'm like, think about it for just a second. Like, he loves you. He died for you. He purchased you when you were nothing. That's the God we serve. Which begs the question, if God does that for his church, then what's the church doing for him? If you're the bride of Christ, then how are you serving him? What does that even look like? I mean, how, how do we do things for him? What does that look like in our lives to give ourselves to the one who is so beautiful and so worthy? 
Well, we give ourselves up in a, a, a myriad of ways. One of them is just in the process of sanctification. Sanctification is a really big word for growing up. So think about it. When our kids were born, they were infants. Infants don't begin with solid foods. They begin with milk, and then they move to mush. And then from mush, they move to meat. So it goes milk, mush, and then meat. It's the same thing for us in Christianity. We begin and we are children. We're on milk. We seem to be tossed to and fro a little bit more. We grow up a little bit. We begin to light ourselves on mush. We, we begin to, in a sense, discover some of the good things of God. And then there's a point in our lives where we look up and we've just become mature. We have put our roots down deep. Our thinking has changed. Our language has changed. Our mind, our habits, all of those things have been growing. That's called sanctification. At the end of the day, if God bought you, purchased you, and ransomed you when you were unloving, unfaithful, and unclean, the only option is for you to become faithful, loving, and clean. At some point, we got to grow up, right? Because he doesn't purchase the bride to leave her the way he is. A guy named Max Lucado, he wrote a book a long time ago, and it just basically the point of it is that Jesus loves you too much the way to leave you the way you are. At the end of the day, that's the goal. He wants to move you forward. He goes, I, I sacrificed myself. I submitted myself to the Father in service to you so that you would become the bride you never knew you could be. The picture of that's Revelation chapter 19 and he desires for the, the bride of Christ to be fine linen, white and clean, that we would be dressed and ready for the husband. Jesus is going to return one day. And if we, if we don't meet him as he returns for us, it means we're going to meet him uh, when we die, when our bodies return to dust. At the end of the day, one day we're going to see him and we're going to know him and he is going to delight in his bride by the measure in which we were made into his image, conformed to his likeness. The reason that we have brides that wear a white dress is a symbol of such purity. At the end of the day, the people of God should be not only growing up in maturity, but they should be more conforming no longer to the patterns of the world, but our minds being renewed day by day. Why? Because we are becoming God's man, God's woman. That's sanctification. At the end of the day, our culture has lost the meaning of a white dress, and unfortunately the church has lost the meaning of what it looks like to be the bride of Christ. At the end of the day, we should be faithful, white and clean, pure, blameless. Ephesians 5, 26 and 27 says, God came ultimately to sanctify us, to make us spotless, to have no wrinkles. Ladies, I'm not talking about physically, no wrinkles. That's not the goal, okay? The goal is, is that we'd be pure, blameless, spotless. That we would be his man and his woman, the bride of Christ. That in sanctification we grow up. In our devotion we become more devoted. The, the idea is that we would become faithful to him. That there would be no other gods before him. The God of our work. The God of our image. The God of, of anything that we delight in. Whether it be money or greed or satisfaction or pleasure whether it be the pursuit of us being our own God. He goes, in devotion and sanctification, we humbly submit ourselves to him. He is our husband. So think about that. If Christ is your husband, what does he desire for you? He desires devotion, faithfulness to him. I don't know you, but I've never met a man who wants a wife to be unfaithful. I've never met a woman who desires for her husband to be unfaithful. That's not a quality we pursue together in marriage. It's not a quality that God pursued in you. 
as his bride, he goes, I want you to be sanctified. I want you to be devoted. At the end of the day, what we know, 2 Corinthians 4, 16, that outwardly, day by day, our outward bodies are wasting away, but daily our bodies are being renewed in the spirit day by day. At the end of the day, we want to continue to be renewed in Christ. We want him to be our sustenance and our strength. We want to be the one that we, he's the one we're devoting ourselves to. And so in glad submission, we're coming under him. And so we devote to him, we're sanctified in him, we submit ourselves to him. We submit ourselves to him in a variety of things, in our hopes, our lives, our dreams, our plans. We do that in our, our obedience. We do it in our schedules. We keep his commands. We delight in the word of God. We delight in his decrees. We delight to devote ourselves to him. Which, if we're devoting ourselves to Him and we're submitting ourselves to Him, we don't do that just occasionally. We don't do it on a weekend when we're gathering together, singing a few songs. We do it daily. It's kind of the idea of John chapter 15. Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branch of me, and it remains in me, and I in Him, He'll bear much fruit. James said something that's, I think, very similar, although very different. James goes, hey, listen, uh, don't find yourself planning too far ahead or boasting about tomorrow, because today has enough troubles of its own. What does Jesus, what does Jesus mean? What does he mean by, I'm the vine, you're the branch, the man remains in me, and I'm in him? And what does James mean by, hey, why don't you just focus on today? Here's what he's talking about. It's the very thing I pray with my kids with every night as we go to bed. We thank God for the day, and then here's what we pray. Lord, would you just recharge us? Would you just remind us that in our flesh that we're weak? Would you just remind us that even in our physical flesh, as we lay our heads down, as our eyes are tired, as they hardly stay alert, even in our prayer, Lord, would you just remind me the flesh is weak. The spirit is willing, the flesh is weak, is what Jesus says, right? Lord, remind me of that. I have to have you. I have to have my daily bread. And that's more important than the bread that I'll eat at lunch. I have to have the word of God, which is more rich in me delighting in your truth and anything else that I'll have today. Lord, I need you. I submit myself to you. I'm devoted to you because at the end of the day, I know how unfaithful I am. The old hymn, I'm prone to leave the God I love. Anybody else, just raise your hand and go, I'm prone to leave the God I love. Anybody? Man, I'm prone to leave the God I love. God, I need you. I will boast about tomorrow or next week or next year's vacation. I will plan my 401k away. I'm looking at how I can retire and give this bad boy over to somebody younger and more energetic. What, Brandon? Why are you boasting? Doesn't today have enough trouble of its own? Y'all feel that ever? Like, just lean in. Be devoted to the one who's so devoted to you. Submit to him and then serve him. In service, like we serve our king. At the end of the day, whether you see him as king or you see him as your husband or you see him as the head of the church or you see him as your good shepherd, you pick any analogy that you want. I don't care. And the king, if he issues a decree, we do it. If the, the shepherd says, hey, we're going to a new pasture, guess what? We go. If the husband says, we've got a better plan, come and be devoted to me, be faithful to me, don't leave me as I've committed to never leave you, then guess what? We, we, we stay with him. It doesn't matter what analogy. If it's the head of the church and we're his members, then guess what? We serve him. We're his hands and his feet. We're the body. You get it? Pick any analogy you want. At the end of the day, if he is supreme in our lives, then it means we are his. 
And if we're his, we've got to ask the question, am I being sanctified? Am I devoting myself to him? And am I submitting to his plans and his decrees and his commands in my life? Am I doing what he's asking me to do? How am I using my hands for his service? How am I using my attitude in the way that it brings meaning in the body, in the church? How am I using the good gifts that he's delighted to give me? Am I just keeping them for myself? Because at the end of the day, there is, there's no picture in the scripture that we should keep the good gifts that God gives us for ourselves. Because they are his gifts to us for service in his kingdom, in the relationship with him. We should do good deeds. At the end of the day, Titus 2.14, he redeemed us from all of our unrighteousness. He cleans us up, purifies us for himself, is what the scripture says. The reason that God picks an unfaithful bride to clean up is not for you. Think about that for just a second. Would you just lean in that for just a second with me? The reason God redeemed you, cleaned you up, molded you, shaped you, forgave you, and never leaves your side is not for you. You were bought with a price, and you're not your own. So glorify God in your body. At the end of the day, what he has done in me is not for me. It's for service to him. Wow. How are you serving him, church? How are you serving him? Listen, I, I realize in a season in my life, like can I just tell you a season in my life in which this text has become a reality for me? Our life in the last few weeks, my wife going back after being a stay-at-home mom for nine and a half years, I feel like it's turned upside down. I see all the areas that I miss it. I seek to serve, and even as I serve, I see my self-righteousness in my serving. I do a load of laundry, and I think to myself, wow, wouldn't every woman on the planet love to have a husband like this? <laughs> and then, listen, in my self-righteousness, I'm reminded that I'm serving for the wrong reason. Matter of fact, here's what the Lord is delighting to show me is that, Brandon, you're missing it, dude. You're missing it. You don't serve me out of obligation. You serve me out of joy because of what I've done in your life. You don't complain in your service. You don't whine about your service. At the end of the day, you're my bride. Is it really an obligation, Brandon, to be my bride? Is it really a hindrance? Is it really a hardship for you to be my bride? Is it really a hardship to be the bride of Christ? Is it too much of an obligation? Does it just make you too uncomfortable? Or at the end of the day, do we delight in serving our faithful husband? That's what we give ourselves to. Here's the deal. You see his love for the church and how the church should love. We know he's faithful. The question is, how faithful are you? Now, here's... Here's your homework. You ready? Guys, all I need you to do is take everything I just said about Jesus and the church. I need you to scratch out the name Jesus or circle it really big and then right above it, just write your name as a husband. Just write your name there. And then as the church, just circle the church and right above it, ladies, just write your name. And then just go back and read the text and study this right here. And instead of thinking of the lens of Jesus loving the church, think about husbands, how you're loving your wives. The question is, is... Are you faithful? Do you cover her with grace or do you keep a record of wrongs in your self-righteousness? Are you keeping score about how many loads of 
dishes you've done, how many loads of laundry, or how many times you've swept the floor? Are you looking for all the ways that she's missed it? Man, I hope she's not counting the times we've not mowed the lawn or weed-eated, right? Is that how you see it, that you've got a list of your things and I've got a list of my things? Or are we partnering in the gospel together? What's that look like? At the end of the day, am I the, the perfect husband? No. Do I have the perfect husband that gives me the perfect example? Yes. Should I learn, learn and lean into his example far more? Yes. You have a picture of the faithful church, the bride of Christ, what she should be. Yes. Are you the faithful bride? Are you the perfect bride? No. Can you become more diligent in your loving your husband and caring for him and following him? Yes. At the end of the day, guys, you cannot lead your wives to something you're not submitting to yourself. Let me close with this. Um, Chuck Colson wrote a story uh, many years ago about a boy in World War II. Um, It was a squad of people in World War II that had been captured. They were at the hands of um, some very oppressive people. Uh, Every day they would get up and with shovels in hand, they would have to go outside and do very laborious day's work. They would dig from sunup to sundown, have meager meals and rationings. And at the end of the evening, they would have to come back into their bunks and they would count their shovels. And every shovel had to be there. One particular night, the guard had lined all the men up. There were 20 of them in their particular bunk. And the, the guard began to count. There were 20 men, and as he counted, he came up with 19 shovers, shovels in which he demanded, I need to know which one of you fools left the shovel outside. And it was silent. And his anger grew, and he became more domineering, and he said, I need to know which one of you fools left your shovel outside. And if I don't get an answer within 30 seconds, five of you are going to be disposed of. And he pulled his gun out. At once, a 19-year-old boy put his head down. He stepped out amongst the 20. A man pulled him aside and quickly took him right to the side where everybody could see. And he disposed of him in front of them. The men with tears in their eyes trying to hold back the, the thought, sobering as it was. The guard leaves. And to their dismay, they count the shovels. And the guard had counted wrong. Indeed, there were 20 shovels in the room with them. And a 19-year-old boy never saw his wife or his children. He never got to have the education that he had given up for his country. At the end of the day, he became sacrificial. He laid his life down for his friends. He gave an ultimate price. Friends, you're moved to tears in a story like that. Can I just tell you that Jesus was young? He gave up everything he ever knew or had so that you could be a faithful bride, that he would clean you up, mold you, and shape you in his image. I don't know about you, church, but I think we owe him a lot. And I pray that we'll give our lives in service to him, not out under guilt or compulsion or because some guy lords that over you, but because it's a delight to know and see and understand the goodness of God in our lives. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you for our marriages. I pray that every man in this room who is married to the bride of his youth, Lord, that they would be reminded this moment that we could serve more sacrificially, that we could give more abundantly, that we don't lord our position or power over them because at the end of the day, we give up all of our position and power when we chose to marry them. 
At the end of the day, to be your man means that we die to ourselves daily. That we don't look at nourishing or feeding our own body, but we look at how we feed and nourish the bride of our youth. Lord, help us with that. Lord, I pray that we would move some of the selfishness, self-centered and the cynical side of us aside so that we might love our wives better. I pray for the ladies in this room. I pray that they would look at the example of the church. Lord, how should we be doing it? Not how are we doing, but how should we be doing it? Lord, can we serve our husbands better? Can we come alongside of them? Can we love them more? Can we cherish them more? Can we respect them more? I pray for these ladies as they wrestle with this text. At the end of the day, I pray that our marriages are an example to the people in this world of a husband who's faithful in the imagery of Jesus and a bride who is pure in the imagery of the church. Lord, help us because we need it. Sanctify us, grow us in our service, and help us most of all to submit to you daily because we need you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.